Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. This is M. Allen Cunningham from Portland, Oregon. I'll be reading today from my new novel, Lost Son. Lost Son is the story of the European poet Rainer Maria Rilke, who is perhaps most beloved among readers in the United States for his letters to a young poet. What most fascinates me about Rilke, the man and artist, is his incredibly peculiar sensibility and sensitivity. It's as if he was an open nerve that the world exerted itself upon. Uh, So Lost Son explores how an artist so vulnerable and so masterful managed to make his way in the modern world. At 21, Rilke moved to Munich, where he met a woman called Lou Andreas Salome, and uh, she became one of the most important people in his life and one of his most profound influences. That's where this excerpt from Lost Son begins. Munich, May 1897, age 21. Several people in the apartment now, not a great number, yet somehow a small sea. Around you, a murmurous noise like lapping water, clink of porcelain, the granular chime of cups seated to saucer rings. Jacob Wasserman, the host, is nowhere to be found. In the duller light ahead, in one of Wasserman's wooden chairs, sits the figure you know immediately, though you've never seen her before. The haze of her loosely gathered hair has somehow caught the window light and effulges blondly. She's cloaked in a shapeless frock, all pleats and drapes, outfit somewhat clerical, almost androgynous, but there's something potently feminine in the fall of the slack collar about her throat. A feathery boa hugs her neck in a blur. She holds a saucer in one hand. The other hand raises the cup to her lips as she listens to the woman seated across from her. You stand there several moments, watching her from four paces back. She is fourteen years your senior, famous, and possessed of a musky sexual frequency intense enough to scramble the stoutest masculine confidence. She has scrambled many. You can look to be little more than a boy before her. During a recent trip to Venice, you've sprouted a fuzzy mustache and the ragged arrow of a beard. It's a young man's dark visage, and yet it's still the face that stared from your childhood photographs when you were propped up in your girl clothes beside a nursery chair big hands shifting you into place, tugging at your skirts, tilting your button hat just so. The impartial Cambra had apprehended an unmistakably boyish face fringed with ribbons. The child they called Renee Maria, dark soul staring from a body not its own, already an outlander's gaze. The lady turns now, her eyes touch you. She will write that her first thought upon seeing you was that there was no back to your head. A gap has opened in her conversation. Venture forward. Say something. I have read you, you tell her. I have written you. Your hand goes toward her. I am Rene Maria Rilke. And then she is taking your hand, pressing. Hello. Her eyes seem very large and clear, blue irises like geodes, bedded with flints of every color. You say you've written me. You are wheeling inside. Some dizzying power shrinks her, eyesight scrolling up. Yes, I was very taken with your essay in the Neudeutsche Rundschau. 
Ah, was it Jesus der Jude, or... Yes. Ah, her chin rising a little. Thank you. And now her eyes drift down again, her head turns, and someone else has won her attention. Something slides away beneath you. Suddenly several moments have vanished. You've been drawn off in irresistible retreat, barely a few words exchanged with her, and yet the beautiful lady was not dismissive. Her glance was indulgent. Her face had a gothic kind of sweetness. Dark evening. Alone in his room, the young poet again writes the famous author a letter, presents himself to her as an artist of words. Like her, he's penned some work on the subject of Christ, he writes, but her essay is an immense fulfillment of all that his poems merely struggled for. He'd wished to express his thankfulness in person, but had been thwarted by the presence of others. In the ceremonial silence of a letter, however, he hopes she can hear his gratitude, and maybe she will allow him to read his visions of Christ to her sometime. That, like nothing else, will ensure he's properly offered his thanks. Next to his coffee cup two mornings later, the landlady places a trim envelope to the poet René Maria Rilke in elegant lavender script. I suddenly recognized your handwriting. Why didn't you sign that very first letter of yours? Come to the Hotel Kiestorp for lunch. We'll steal a table to ourselves. Lou. A great hatch clatters open. René Maria falls through the turning day, and then, what seems an instant later, he is seated in a rear corner of the Kiestorp dining room with Lou Andreas Salome before him, and she is listening as he reads. A huge 18th-century mirror dominates the wall behind her, its smoky pane marbled with threads of bronze, but the lady stands out of that, vibrant, salubrious, and every time René Maria looks up from the page, his eyes fall on the spiraled hair at the back of her head, loose chignon above the downy chevrons at her nape. Ah, and the bare white length of her neck, where two knees of spine undulate as under silk. He reads three Christ visions. Lou is silent. When he's done, her clear eyes sway closed. She nods a small smile and thanks him. He can sense the note of restraint in her response. He says, They are the most I have. You see how very far they stand from your work. You shouldn't apologize. I'm glad you've shared them. Something is glinting within her. She's been moved, not by the poems, no, but by something. Astonishing how clearly she conveys this. I knew I'd feel these were lacking in themselves, he tells her, so I've brought you this other gift, my new book, Dream Crowned, it's called. In the mirror's blurred periphery, he sees his doubled motion, the thin volume floating forward from his hands into hers and the book skimming seamlessly across a threshold, warped into the flatter world of the mirror without the slightest ripple, and now the mirror holds it. Dream Crowned, she says, is that meant to describe the author? It would suit him now more than ever, Frau, being in your company. Again, she gives a small, wry smile, barely a twitch of her mouth. It's inscribed, I hope. Yes, to Frau Lou Andreas Salome, with thanks that I was permitted to meet her. And is this another poem inside? Yes. Did you write this for, just for the inscription? Yes. He watches as her eyes glide down the page. Then she closes the book and lays it flat on the tablecloth, one palm pressed to the cover as if to sense warmth from the pages beneath. She lifts her teacup, drinks with downturned eyes. He sits before her in the noiseless mirror space. Her cup 
chimed softly at the saucer. Why Rene Maria? Why? Yes, why not just Rene? My mother is very devout, he says, blushing. I imagine then she's innocent of the Christ poems her son is writing. Naturally, I'm afraid. And if she knew? Impossible. It doesn't seem to fit, somehow. What doesn't, Frau? Rene Maria, somebody with such a name writing these ungentle things. Well, you may call me what you please, Frau. Rene, then, she says with a forthright look. It's still not what it should be, but it will serve for now. And what should it be? She holds him with her imperious, warm, almost smiling gaze. You are very eager. He meets her gaze, still awaiting answer. Their joined eyes do not waver. She says, Something more vital, certainly, a name not so curtsying. A new thought seems to visit her. I believe I'd like for us to talk at length. Yes? Can we do that now that I've heard your poems? Now? From now on, I mean, not just in notes and poetry. I would be privileged. Don't be. Just come to see me. Of course, Frau. Good. Her elbows coming up, the white napkin lifted from her lap to the plate. But if I can't find you, he says, can't find me. Yes, I'm afraid notes and poems will be inevitable then. Lou's chin draws back a little, a nearly startled look in her spectral eyes. Then, despite herself, she smiles. Very well. Very well. With these simple words, Rene Maria Rilke is given the courtship of Europe's famous Lou. Not a week since they've met, but they seem to recognize each other as from an era long past. Spring in Munich, great spring within you, your first such season. It's clear to you now, every preceding spring has been but a lantern show in the dark theater of your being. This one, however, is germination, ebullience, something knuckling upward through the fallow ground inside you, and you mean to bear witness as never before, to feel this vivacity in every limb. You call on Lou Andreas Salome, as she requested, and now, hours alone with her, company of two while the impetuous spring days vibrate with terrific sunlight through the trees beyond her window. Lou stands with the window at her back, her hands a glimmer of motion while she talks, that bright world alive behind her. Other days, unruly May rain batters the glass, and Lou sits at ease in a wing-back chair, or at a table in the Kistorp dining room, the flatware gladdened by her animating touch. She's read dream-crowned, yes, but she doesn't understand your poems. Late one evening she tells you this, bluntly, leveling her gaze from the chair where she slouches. Dusk blackens the window at her back, a charred paper pasted to the glass. You listen to her judgment, then stand up and walk to the window and look out into that lusterless evening, light curling like flakes of singed carbon across the deeper darkness, all the day's color still implicit in that gloam. I knew how you felt, you say. The first time I read to you, I could see it. Could you? Yeah, in your face. I don't know what it is. The verses seem to speak at first, but then, then they become just music. Just pretty, you mean. Yes, very pretty. Her words ought to devastate you, but somehow you're free of danger, as if she has sailed you safely between her palms, as if she can make anything holy, 
even abasement. Her judgments have soon impelled you to new beginnings. Repeatedly you fly from her presence into the rude enclosure of your rented room on Blutenstrasse, knock yourself over like a cup, and let poems flood off the sides of your shabby desk. Again and again she accepts these poems, silently, else with some small gesture, some small word from which you may gather the work's weakness. In but a brief spring fortnight your days have been tugged back under the gravity of Lou Andreas Salome. To you it seems morning and always morning now, even the Munich nights which previously looked so dark. Questions rise around you like so much water. You swim in questions, but one thing you know, one thing like a firm floor to the sea in which you kick and wave. Despite her criticism, her embarrassment at your fledgling ways, Lou welcomes you, even takes pleasure in your presence. One night you await her at the theater, but she fails to appear. You are standing in the lobby with ticket in hand when Nora and Sophie Godsticker come in. But wasn't Lou coming, you say, and the girl's averted looks show you the measure of your own ardor. The first bell sounds. I'll wait a few minutes, you tell them, though you've waited half an hour already. You watch the girls drifting down the red aisle into the dim velvet stomach of the stalls. Presently, the ushers begin to close the doors, and you find yourself sinking to your seat just as the lights go down. Not here, whispers Nora. Not here. The famous actor enters. In your ears, the applause is a noise of great fibers rending. Impossible to know what happens on stage. Bodies jostle here to there. Footsteps clatter and clatter across the boards. At last, the interval. I'm leaving now, you tell the sisters. Sorry, not well tonight. Carefully, their faces try to cover their comprehension. Your real ailment is known to them. It's not yet twilight in the streets, the late spring day brazenly bright and long. You hurry to the keystore, but Lou is not there. From a nearby flower stall, you buy two roses, and somehow it gives you a shock of strange hope to hold those flowers. For an hour, you wander the streets, spiraling walk. You are certain you'll find her. She will appear. In every step, every thought, you are calling her forth. And why should she fail to heed? At last you come to the green Englischer Garten, a world rudely alive. Roses stand up robust and defiant in the tended beds. The ones in your hand were wilting before you bought them. Your silver exchanged in a gesture of flimsy romantic hope. Last youthful barter. Somehow you know it as such. Twilight breathes above the lawns. You sit on a garden bench, watching as the grass softens to blue. Soon an attendant will come along sounding a bell. You will be ferried out and the tall gates locked behind you. But to look at all this first, to see it and know it, and one day, perhaps, to say it, to grow up towards simple things, simple things expressed and believed, that is what Lou has been urging you toward. You'll get there, you're determined now, and then she won't make you go searching for her. An hour later in the Keystorp lobby, you are handing a note to the girl behind the desk when Lou steps through the entrance. She's alone, that brings relief. At the sight of you, she slows considerably, easing forward into the yellow waver of the wall sconces. Then she stands before you, looks at the girl and the small paper rustling in the girl's fingers. Is that for me? Yeah, you say. Another poem, I'm afraid. 
and you see this causes her to blush. Lou plucks the paper from the girl's fingers, but does not open it, just holds it in two downturned hands, like a tiny purse. Her fingers slide back and forth along the folded edge. You can see the tautness in her limbs, a kind of cold resistance. She says, I'm sorry I couldn't come tonight. She is watching her own moving hands. She looks almost timid, as you've never yet seen her. Silence, no further explanation. I'd like some tea, you say abruptly. Shall we? Lou's eyes flutter, her face hardening, an affronted stare. She starts past you across the lobby, her inimitable musk stirring in the hurry. You pursue her to the stairwell door. Already she started up the stairs as the door swings shut behind you. You stop there in the vestibule and blurt, I want you to read it now. Five or six steps above, Lou halts, turns to look down upon you. She is statuesque, monumental in her shirred frock. Her hands move, the paper crackling. And in her face as she reads, despite her transgressed intellect, you can see a buried smile, a flicker of pleasure, her discriminations be damned. So you rise toward her on the dim stairs. A yellow sconce light below sends your shadow wobbling upward upon the steps, plunging forth into the narrowing darkness, your dark head and hers pooling shapelessly above you black in black. Pause, standing close before her. Breathe the dusky fennel scent clinging all about her like smoke. Lou. The fingers of her left hand curl at the banister. Lou, you say, and touch her. Cup your hand to her torso's curve. She winces, shiver of broadcloth and gossamer. Her heat has imbued the fabric. She's warm as day. And she's smaller than those garments attest. Your hand, shaped to her side, is seeing her. Your heart beats in that hand as in an eye. Lou unclutches the banister. Her scent pours over you as she brings up her arms. Her fingers come fanning deep into your hair, cradling your skull, tugging you close, and now you are enfolded fast and embracing the backs of her knees, your face against her slack collar, the smell of your homecoming. Burrow your mouth to the hollow of her breast, her heart hammering beneath your kiss. You are murmuring into cloth. Say it again, more clearly. You alone are real. You remain locked to her, watching the joists of shadowed bone below her throat, so close and motionless. Then, Renée, her hands compelling your head backward, Renée, go home now. Lou, I know, she says. She is holding your face in her palms, the mauve scent of her wrists. I know, we'll be all right. Go home now. Lou, we'll be all right, I promise. With a mild shove, she separates, begins to flow backward up the steps as though sucked away by some powerful past. Wait to hear from me, she says. Don't worry. She fades in the high darkness. The train rockets them south from Munich, great glittering needle plunging through the city boundary. Night train, yet the spring sun hangs implausibly festive above the fields, and rungs of light veer through the carriage with vertiginous speed. Lou sits very still. She does not speak, only locks her arm in his and waits. Renée Maria listens to the train wheels beneath them, heavy gears ecstatic in roar and clatter. Now, 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 now. Does Lou hear it also? 
For days this incantatory byword has thrummed in the young poet's brain. The morning after they stood together on the Keystorp stairs, Lou sent a note. We must find some place to go. We will. We must. But he was made to wait while she fulfilled her immediate engagements in Munich. A few days more, said a second note. Because he sensed he was a danger to her, he kept away, didn't call. Meanwhile, his fervor poured into poems by the score. Innumerable hours confined in his small apartment, and yet he was past himself for the first time. At last, this morning, came her leave. Waiting is over. Train tonight to Wolfratshausen. Six o'clock. I'll come to you. She knew that nothing would keep him from such a flight. Now, 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 chants the train. Then suddenly, Wolfratshausen. Storybook Mountain Village. Her grip is strong and manlike in its clear need as she pulls him along cobblestone paths that seem to surge underfoot in their bodied weave of rock, along village lanes hemmed by gloaming woods, by noise of evening birds. From somewhere above comes the riotous clangor of a church bell strangely baroque. Here and there a villager shambles past, bundled in cloak and scarf and woolen cap. Rene Maria has barely noticed the alpine chill, Lou's hand is the only thing, that streaming heat, so communicative. She pulls him around a corner, and here beside the slanting pickets of a pasture fence, she stops and pulls him close and kisses him, and now, 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 in the deep dream of her musk and mouth, his time falls short. For they've come together at the whirling center of something. They've stolen each other to get here, but already the hours are flaring away like water displaced, like everything that slides off the slick, hard surface of eternity, and the thought of return hangs in him like a threat. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.